It was a fine spring day in Heidelberg, nestled by the banks of the Necker River, when I met him at his house. Albert Speer was relaxed and had no qualms at all about revisiting his lurid past as Hitler's architect, metteur en scène of giant Nazi propaganda rallies, armaments minister, exploiter and murderer of hundreds of thousands of slave laborers, and the Fuhrer's closest friend. He could talk about those years for hours in his fluent Franconian accent in English. He picked it up from his American and British military guards in Berlin's Spandau prison, where he was incarcerated for war crimes until 1966, lucky not to have been hanged with Ribbentrop and the rest. Why do you agree to meet foreign journalists like me and patiently answer our endless questions? I started out by asking him. It is my duty, he replied with a shrug. I am the only one left of Hitler's innermost circle. People such as you and your audience have a right to know. I never, of course, breathed a word that I was a child and grandchild of Holocaust survivors. And he was far too cultivated, had I done so, to have batted an eyelid. I got the feeling Frau Speer, sitting next to him, had heard it all before. We were out of doors on the terrace of the large family home that had once belonged to his architect father and to which he had returned. Beyond it, we could see the vineyards of the Necker River Valley and the Palatine Hills, and a thousand feet below glistened the Baroque spires and medieval squares of Germany's oldest university town. I had traveled from London to interview him for a BBC television documentary on the 30th anniversary of the 1944 bomb plot, Valkyrie, the failed attempt by Colonel Klaus von Stauffenberg and a group of aristocrats in the army to assassinate Hitler. Thirty years earlier, Speer had been in Berlin with Joseph Goebbels that day and snuffed out this attempted coup d'etat, ordering the summary execution of its heroic leaders. Now, he wanted to talk about something else. After the interview, he invited me to stay for lunch, and I agreed. Speer was cool and so damn detached. It was hard for me to reconcile this scene with reality. I cannot believe I'm sitting with a man who knew Hitler, was his best friend, and was part of the whole horrible, evil machine, I found myself thinking. Journalists are asked to interview very bad people, as well as very good ones. But looking back, I'm slightly ashamed that I didn't say anything at all. I called the Frankfurt airport, rebooked my flight, settled into a comfortable garden chair, and accepted a glass of white wine. Speer at that point was a very sprightly and well-preserved man in his 70s. He disappeared into the house and reappeared with a pile of paper and a few big tomes. It seemed rehearsed. See here, he said. These are architectural drawings Hitler made in his beer hall days in Munich when he'd never been anywhere. He gave them to me, detailed drawings, models and plans, such things he found spellbinding. He laid them out on the large glass-topped table while his wife busied herself serving cold cuts and cheese to accompany the excellent Riesling she poured. Here, for example, is a sketch of Napoleon's tomb in Paris. Here, Georges Haussmann's Champs-Élysées, completed in 1870. Picture the scene. It is dawn, a deserted Le Bourget airport outside Paris, three days after the French surrender. 
A small plane lands in the mist and outstep four men. First into the waiting Mercedes is the victorious Führer. The other three are Albert Speer, the master planner for Berlin, Hermann Giesler, a self-taught architect favored by the Führer, and Arno Bracker, maker of massive marble male nudes. They are here to accompany the conqueror as he takes time out from the important work of rearranging the political geography of Europe and terrorizing millions to indulge in three hours of tourism. Despite never having set foot in the French capital in his life, the Führer boldly leads the way. In Paris, of course, he headed for Napoleon's tomb at Les Invalides. He gazed down at the French emperor's sarcophagus for a very long time, Speer told me, without uttering a single word, as if mesmerized. It was this combined with his admiration for the Roman pantheon that set him thinking about his own mortal remains and how eventually to display them. Imagine, Speer recalled Hitler saying, if Napoleon's sarcophagus had been placed beneath a large oculus like that of the Pantheon, how much better that would be. It would be exposed to darkness and light, rain, snow, and linked to the universe. Speer was talking about Hitler as though he were a god, ascending like Jesus or becoming astral like Caesar. He was not free of the spell. Peter, that's quite a reading. Is it? The most interesting thing about Albert Speer is that he's constructed for himself in order to live with himself Potemkin consciousnesses, false consciousnesses within his mind that, that tell him that he didn't really know about the final solution when in fact he was, um, through his logistical prowess, right? He began as Hitler's architect and became the minister of armaments. He was a vital part of the, of the final solution. He wasn't a vital part of the final solution. He was part of the final solution, but there were people who were much more important. But he did use well, you said, labor. You said that you thought he designed the gas chambers. Well, he, may, he, he seems to have been drafted at one point to help design the camps. Well, I would say that's a vital part. But I don't think, you know, I think it's much more complicated than that. He wasn't just a liar, although he was a liar. He was a denier. He denied a deep denial, deep denial to himself so that you show up there as a journalist and you know that your job is to find out about Operation Valkyrie, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, you know, that you are that will be a fool's mission for you to even mention this other stuff because he's in such deep denial that he'll react violently or not or shut down. I look, everybody who ever talked to him asked him about the Jews. He was interrogated right after the war by the Americans. George Ball interrogated him in Flossenburg in Germany and came to the conclusion that he was, first of all, the most interesting Nazi by far, the most intelligent Nazi by far, and secondly, that he had a story that was really quite complicated. He wasn't a hater of the Jews particularly. I mean, everyone had a certain thing about the Jews in those days in Europe, but he was not a fanatic. He was far too good a human being for that. In prison, in Spandau, he had three confessors. He had a Jew, a rabbi, he had a Catholic priest, and he had a Protestant priest. By far the most important of the three was the Protestant priest. The Protestant priest, you know, took his confession day after day after day, talked to him in the prison day after day after day, and realized that Speer was actually trying to resurrect himself as a moral human, which he felt he had been before he met Hitler. You know, there were many thugs and killers among the Nazis, even the very top Nazis. He was not one of those. And yet, 
he kept the Wehrmacht running and competitive for an extra at least six months. I mean, he was essential to this to their effort. That is war. If you are a German and you're a nationalist and you are in the German camp and you are fighting against the Americans, the Russians, and the British, your job really is to try and help your country. He was, an, he was not an anti-nationalist, and until very late, he wasn't even an anti-Nazi. So he was helping out in his mind, and that's actually true. He was a genius. He was a managerial genius. Who was involved in deep discussions and inner circle intelligence. So you can't apply to him the morality that you would to someone who'd just been drafted into the into the war effort because they happen to be German. No, that's true. I mean, he was he, he was far too intelligent and sophisticated a man to get off with that. To get off with that, many people who met him set out to try and trip him up, find him out, to try and condemn him, and many people actually came away impressed by his struggle for the truth. He was he never visited a concentration camp in his life. There was a story in the 1970s that Himmler, who was the architect indeed of the final solution, that Himmler had taken him to a speech that Himmler gave, which was um, about the Jews. He was in Poland, yeah. in a town called Posen. And, and he was there. No, he wasn't there. He wasn't there when Himmler made the speech. He wasn't. It's been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that he wasn't there. So you can't actually pin him that well, easily. Well, it, it doesn't matter, it says Gita Sereni, that he wasn't there because he would have heard about it the next morning when he had, like, breakfast with Hitler. Gita Sereni, let me just introduce her, was a German, Anglo-German journalist who spent 20 years, probably, writing a book about Albert Speer called Albert Speer, His Battle with the Truth. She started out wanting to condemn him she spent hour upon hour upon hour, it's a brilliant book, hour upon hour with him and all the other people he knew and his family and so on and so forth. She came away at the end, if you read the postscript to the book, admiring him. He struggled with it. Had he admitted, of course, when he was captured by the Americans and the British, had he admitted that he was present you know, in the concentration camps, which I don't believe he was, had he admitted that he knew all about the Holocaust and was, you know, complacent. He would have been killed. He would have been hanged. As he should have been. I don't doubt that Albert Speer was a ruthless, ambitious a man who, when he was very, very young, was given great authority by Hitler. It's very heady to become the architect of the Nazi state. Uh, Nazi state. Well, and, and he believes in this moment that his architecture is going to last for thousands of years. He does. He does. I'm not sure that all. I'm not sure that all his architecture was all that bad. But the idea of Ruinworth theory, right? Well, that, that he certainly uh, he he invented that. Ruinenwerk theorie was the idea that Roman remains, Roman ruins all over the Mediterranean, look wonderful after two thousand years, but that the construction technique used in the twentieth century by German German engineers and architects involved reinforced concrete and steel and things of that kind, which wouldn't look good in 2,000 years. This was a megalomaniac. Hitler appealed to his megalomania long after Hitler was gone. His works were going to be part of the landscape and part of the human consciousness. That's right, and he, he planned Berlin as a bigger Rome. He planned Berlin along the lines of Rome, but as a larger Rome. It was going to be called Germania. And of course he was a megalomaniac. I mean, I think many architects are. You only have to read Ayn Rand to see that. Architects are, in some ways, you know, a menace because they do actually believe in 
their own divinity. And Speer believed in his own architectural divinity. He thought he was an artist. He thought Hitler was an artist. I think it's worth ruminating and reflecting on the idea that many artists think it doesn't matter how they behave, it only matters what the art is. That was Wagner's view. But that wouldn't help Speer because the architecture is actually not that good. Well, I don't even know that that's true. You're sort of constantly putting him down. The, the huge arena in Nuremberg, where the party had its annual uh, rally, filmed in 1934 by Leni Riefenstahl and turned into one of the greatest documentaries ever made, called Triumph of the Will, with its light, cathedral of light, Speer called it. He lit Hitler in such a way that Hitler became a god. Well, right. I mean, every time that you watch the Olympics, you are watching the legacy of Nazi cinema. Yeah. And every time on 9-11, you look at Lower Manhattan and those two shafts of light, you're looking at the legacy of Speer's Cathedral of Light. You are. You fact, are. You are, in fact. I mean, he was a man of ideas. Which doesn't make either good, but that well, I mean, but, good but is still good. with us. I don't think he was one of the greatest architects of the 20th century. No, I do not. Yeah. But he was not as bad as it's tempting to say. So you go there and your job is to interview him about Operation Valkyrie, which has, yep. had happened 30 years ago yep. at that moment. Yep, yep. You are someone who's in your family. You lost how many people to the Holocaust? Well, in my extended family, about 20. Did he say like ever, well, looking back, I really was on the wrong side of things. I just didn't know it. Or was there like a pride when he described the clarity with which he put down the Stauffenberg plot? Well, I mean, the, the irony in my case is that my mother's family, my mother was not Jewish. My mother came from a, a minor aristocratic German family. And two of her cousins were in the bomb plot and they were both hanged by Hitler. So I had both sides of the argument. So what is his demeanor when he's relaying to you how he put down your own family's plot against Hitler? Is he proud that he got an A on the, on the exam? That's the way he probably saw it. It had to be done. Uh, you can't have traitors and treason at that level in a, in a government where half the army are involved. Uh, you have to do something about it if you want to win the war. You've told me that actually the name Valkyrie is misused, and I think that this is fascinating because it tells you so much about the horror of the Reich, right? Where no, it tells you about Hollywood. The fact is... Well, it, it also tells you a lot about America. It wasn't talk called Valkyrie. There was a plan. Every country has one. The United States has one. A plan to declare martial law and to lock up thousands upon thousands of people. Would there, had there been a revolt against the Nazi regime? Well, what makes this plan unique is that it was about, it was concerned with slave labor. The slave labor analogy with American slave laborers. I mean, there was fear in America in the founding fathers' generation of slave revolt. There were slave revolts in the Caribbean. Haiti sure. is a living example. And in the South. So the Germans knew their history, and they knew that it was possible that the Russian prisoners of war and the French prisoners of war, maybe the Jews as well, would rise up, mm -hmm. kill their captors, and try and take over the country. It was not an inconceivable idea, and so they had a plan, which was kept in a safe somewhere in the home army called Valkyrie. So it's true that when the bomb plot was uncovered and when the bomb did not kill Hitler, they simply took out the plan for Valkyrie from the safe and enacted it, and it involved arresting 10,000 people. And the reason why the Germans had this, this need of slave labor is that they never went to a full war economy. Women were never part of the workforce in Nazi That's Germany. That's correct. Why is that? Because I don't know, I don't know exactly. the best explanation I've heard is that fascism has to be fun, which is why the German economy industry was actually manufacturing like pantyhose and chocolate well, during Stalingrad. Well, they, they thought they had enough manpower. They, they did. They didn't realize how devastating the strategic bombing would be. 
and how their aircraft manufacturing plants and their tank factories would be destroyed. So Valkyrie, which we think of as describing... Well, it's a, it's a, it's a romantic... It's a deeper history. It's a romantic word, and I suppose the movie, which starred Tom Cruise as Klaus von Stauffenberg, was a romantic movie about heroism. And so the producers... You know, but use, heroism, uh, but use al- and also aristocracy. Um, there were many plots to kill Hitler. The communists had been trying to kill him from the beginning of the war. That's true. And yet we still have aristocracy and capitalism so ingrained in us today that Tom Cruise plays the German aristocrat who waited pretty much until it was clear the war was lost to do something. That's right. Well, I mean, the, the, there were many aristocratic plots, too. There were many bombs that didn't go off. Hitler was extraordinarily wily, like a fox. He would be, it would be announced that he's flying to Berlin today, and a bomb would be placed on the plane, but he didn't fly. It would be announced that he was driving from his office to, I don't know, the, the army headquarters in Berlin, and a bomb was placed on the route somewhere to blow up, and he didn't drive. He cancelled his plan at the last minute. That happened, oh, a dozen times. The extreme luck is, is the word. I mean, the bomb that actually didn't kill him put there personally by Stauffenberg, was moved from where he left it uh, under a table behind a very thick table leg. And Hitler had his trousers blown off, but he wasn't killed. Had the bomb not been moved by someone's foot because it was in the way, they were having a conference around the table, it would have killed him. Right. You get all the information on this Valkyrie plot, which is surreal enough, given your family background. You're listening to the guy who kept the Nazi regime intact. And then he says to you, hey, I'd like you to be my personal guest and I'd like to have some Riesling with you. Well, that's what he said. And what goes on in your mind when Albert Speer now invites you to go beyond the professional capacity? The BBC film crew has now flown home. They're taking their cameras with them. The kind of moral prophylaxis of journalism, the Janet Malcolm thing, is now being taken away and he's inviting you to stay as a human being with him. That's right. What goes through your mind? Well, fascination. I mean, I wanted to know more. I wanted to hear more. I didn't just want to hear about the bomb plot. I mean, that was what I was there for. I wanted to hear about Hitler. I had spent most of my teenage years and early adult years thinking about Hitler. Hitler ruined the lives of many people I knew, not least of which were my own parents. He made them move to other countries. They risked their lives. Some of them didn't actually survive. And so I want, I've always wanted to know, what is the nature of that man? The choices in a memoir are so specific because you have so little space to convey the great breadth of the life. And you say to the reader, in my life, I've met six or seven. Six or seven. Six I've or seven to... people who knew Hitler directly. Yes, I've, and I've, I've talked it... to, interviewed, met six or seven people, not all in my capacity as a television journalist, actually. Some, but not all. And this is a, a sincere but impossible forensic mission that you undertook in your life to understand why the world that your family had come from had been destroyed by finding clues as to the person who destroyed it. Yes, and I think it's, it's about looking, for the na- looking at the nature of evil, trying to discover what evil means. Correct. I don't think it's discoverable. My own view now is that there is no answer to that question. But at 35, you thought there was an answer, and you thought you might get closer to it by hanging around for cold cuts with Frau Speer and Albert. Absolutely. He was very charming and disarming. <laughs> I mean, Speer was not arguing with me. He wasn't shouting at me. He wasn't gesticulating and saying, you just wait, you know, the next time. He didn't do that. He was very 
if you like, uh, restrained and, and, and even in some funny way remorseful. He too was trying to discover what it was that Hitler had that had bamboozled him, mesmerized him, captured him, all those things. I'm just now realizing how many holidays I've spent with a MAGA uncle who is proud of having dropped a lot of napalm in Vietnam. And so uh, who am I to judge you for having cold cuts with Albert Speer? <laughs> okay, Peter, now I'm going to stop this and we're going to uh, do the second reading.